It's good to see you. My name is Jason, and uh, I am the husband of Andrea, one of the elders at our church there in the back. And I am thrilled to be here. We've been coming to Renew for about seven years. Uh, before that, uh, we had started a church in Des Moines uh, that lived for about five, a little more than five years. And after we closed the, that church, we took our kids on a little tour of Christianity, and we, we went through every type of denomination that was Christian in the Des Moines area, probably not all of them, but we covered the bases, certainly. And then one day we were at Prairie Ridge uh, in Ankeny, because we live in Ankeny, and so sometimes it was just like, ah, oh, well, let's stop over there. And Aaron was preaching, and... When Aaron preached, I was like, why are we going to these other churches anymore? Um, because his sermon, what I remember about it now is that it was about the importance of how we need to think about, care for, and do something about those who are oppressed and underprivileged. It was really calling us uh, as people to care for those who are hurting. And that message really resonated for me, and I just appreciated the heart. Now, we came and visited, then Renew, which was in a middle school, and after the first Sunday, I think, I think later, my daughter, Natasha, said that she knew we were going to come to this church after we visited one time because it was called Renew Community, and the church that we had started was called ReChurch. So she was sure this was going to be the place but I think the name is incidental. It's really the heart of Renew Community that we love. In fact, one of the last series of teachings that I did at ReChurch was about God's no matter what love and that this type of love that accepts and welcomes and is always forgiving and reconciling no matter what, no matter who we are, no matter what we've gone through, no matter what we've done. And I really love as we continue on this journey in Renew Community to be the kind of place that really is open to and accepting and loving everybody no matter what. Now, I didn't coin that little term, that little no matter what idea about God's love. That is from Gregory Boyle, who was a, a uh, Catholic priest in one of the roughest neighborhoods in Los Angeles, uh, working with gang members primarily. And he wrote a book called Tattoos on the Heart. And the subtitle is The Power of Boundless Compassion. And it's fantastic. I mean, just so inspiring. And he talks in this book about the no matter whatness of God's love, which when I heard that, I was like, that is just fantastic. Like, how beautiful. The no matter whatness of God's love, which is where I got that idea from, and it's the heart that I believe we have here at Renew Community, which is fantastic. Now, Aaron knows that I used to be a pastor. Uh, after we closed down the church, I went back to school, and now I'm a mental health counselor in the Des Moines area. Um, and. So Aaron's every once in a while broached the subject of me filling in for him when his father is not available. We appreciate being here today, Tony. But, um, but uh, I wasn't really ready. But it's been years since we talked about that. And so this is an explanation for why I'm here today. Obviously, it's because Aaron's gone, number one. But, but secondly, a few weeks ago, Aaron was teaching, and he was talking about how we want to be this place where people can disagree 
and still be welcome, where people can doubt and still be welcome. And I was standing in my fortress of solitude back there by the uh, <laughs> lyrics, and I, I just thought to myself, I was like, you know what? I might be able to teach about that. I'm pretty good at doubts. I've got a lot of doubts. I can do doubts. That could be all right. And I was just having that thought, like, you know what? That might be kind of nice. I might, I might kind of enjoy that. And that Sunday, after church, Aaron came up to me and said, I can't find anybody to preach when I'm gone. Will you preach? And it seemed like a setup. Like, I was set up. Like, <laughs> God somehow was just like, this is what you're supposed to do. So I said, yes. So today I want to talk about uh, a little bit, just a couple things, a couple brief words about doubt, and then share one of my favorite stories that Jesus ever told. Um, and we'll go from there. I don't have a fancy iPad. I've got like paper here, you know, unlike Aaron. So um, as a mental health counselor, I notice most of the people that I see are struggling with anxiety and depression, I guess, more than anything. Plenty of that going around these days, post and in the midst of COVID and wherever we are with COVID. Didn't help anybody. Um, but one of the things, there's a couple of things that, as I was reflecting, I find myself saying, over and over and over again to clients as we talk about what's going on, as we try to figure out, like, well, where's all this anxiety and depression coming from? And I often find myself saying a couple of major points. One of them is about the fact that you are worthy and valuable. You're important and you matter no matter what you do. It's not about how you perform. You already have value because of what and who you are not because of what you do. And I'm not a Christian counselor, so I don't, you know, unless they're a Christian, I don't pull out, you know, God's no matter what love and explain it. I just have them reflect on other people they know, like small people, like one- and two-year-old people. Like, do you have any nieces or nephews? Do you have any children? Do you know any one-year-olds? Like, do you think they matter? And everybody says, well, yes, they matter. Yes, they're important. Yes, they're valuable what the heck are they doing to make themselves of value? I mean, what do they produce? Poop, mostly, is what they produce, you know? So they take the food that you worked for, and then this is what they give you back is more work for you. They're not doing any good. They're not producing anything. They're of no real, they are of incredible value, even though they don't produce anything because of who they are. So I find myself saying that a lot, which reminds me of God's, like, no matter what, love. One of the other things I find myself saying a lot is, ah, so you made a mistake, and this surprised you? Like, you're really mortified that you made a mistake. Did, did you not know that you were a human-type person? You see, because that's what humans do, is we do that really well. We're actually super good at a lot of things, but it's not good at being perfect. We don't process things perfectly. That's not what we're good at. We all make lots of mistakes. It's a part of the human condition. And so we often are just mortified by the fact that, we, oh, no, I did something wrong, or I made a mistake, or I made a bad decision or something. But that is what it is to be human, is really to make mistakes. Now, for me, when I think about that, I, I like to kind of hedge my bets in life because I am not going to do it right. 
There is no doubt in my mind that I'm not going to do it perfectly. By the way, when I, when I think about this idea about being like perfect, doing it all right, not having any doubts, uh, the other thing that I think about is the, the Bible that God gave us. And when I read the Bible, sometimes people say, well, the Bible is so you have all the answers, or it's so that you can get everything right, so that we'll know the right things to do, and we'll have the right information, and our theology will be right on all this. God gave us this Bible so that we would have all the answers. Sometimes people suggest this. And when I read the Bible, I think, what? It's if this book is supposed to give us all the answers, we should have a different book because this is full of like stories, poems, wild hallucinogenic visions, lists of genealogies. There's a lot of wasted words if what we're supposed to get from this is like the answers, all the perfect theology, the systematic understanding of everything, and also at the end, exactly how you're supposed to live your life. Even when it comes to clear instructions, what we have is different instructions given to different people at different times that sometimes, or fairly often, somewhat contradict what was given to somebody else at a different time when we read the Bible. So, you know, I don't think this was given to us so we'd have all the answers. It strikes me that maybe the Bible is given to us for a very different reason, which I have to tell you, the other little visual aid I have today, is Peter N's book, The Bible Tells Me So, which Aaron this is the best thing I've read about the Bible, and it was because of Aaron's recommendation. And he's tried to get everybody to read it. He's, talking about, he's talked about it for over and over and over again, tried to do small groups about it. If you needed one more little push toward reading it, you should read this book. It is fantastic. So, doubt. Oftentimes, I think one of the reasons we don't like doubt in Christianity is because the Bible talks a lot about faith, and then we think, oh no, if I have faith, I'm not supposed to have doubts. But I don't think that doubts are the opposite of faith. I think certainty is the opposite of faith. You don't need faith if you have certainty. The reason you need faith is because there are doubts, because doubt is kind of this inherent part of being human, and that's why you need faith, similar to why you need courage. You only need courage if you're afraid. Fear and courage are not opposites. The only reason you would need any courage is because you're a little bit afraid. The only reason you need faith is because you don't have all the answers. You don't know everything. If you are certain, by the way, you are either arrogant or uninformed or foolish because the human condition is not really about certainty either, right? We are often wrong in many ways. And because we are often wrong in many ways, when it comes to most issues, I find myself coming to this decision about which way am I going to lean? Am I going to lean this direction or that direction? Because I know I'm going to stumble, I know I'm going to fall, I know I'm going to make mistakes. So which way do I want to fall if I'm going to make mistakes, if I'm not going to have it perfect, if it's not going to be all buttoned up and just right, which way do I want to lean? It's like if I'm walking on a little narrow path in the Rocky Mountains, and on one side there's this cliff wall that's made of granite probably, not granite, 
what is that? It's hard rock on one side, and on the other side is a 2,000-foot drop. Now, I kind of do a little cost-benefit analysis here. I might twist my ankle, slip on a loose rock, and fall. Now, if I'm leaning towards the big rock wall, then if I fall, I'm going to probably bump my knee and hurt it, scrape up my hands, maybe bump my head and hurt it. Like, I could get some pain. If I lean the other way and fall, I'm never going to experience pain ever again in this life. It's going to be just a brief, a brief life, but a painless one. And, and so I lean towards the wall because this seems like a much better decision. Because if I stumble, if I fall, I would rather end up on this side of things. And when I picture following Jesus, I think this is like, I've got to lean one way. I'm not going to be perfect. Jesus may be perfect. God is perfect. I am not perfect. So I've got to, and I think as a church, you know, you had to make these decisions like, well, what do we lean towards? Which we may not have it perfect. We don't know everything. And the God did not give us the kind of Bible where we can, like, perfectly know everything. And so, instead, like, which way am I going to lean toward? And I find myself continuously drawn to this idea of leaning towards God's no matter what love, His acceptance, His forgiveness, His overwhelming grace. And Aaron was just teaching about this. He was just teaching about Jonah. And the story of Jonah, the end of the story of Jonah is that Jonah is really angry because God has just forgiven the Ninevites, and she should not have done that because the Ninevites are horrible people, horrible people. Now, I don't know if you noticed that I used the female pronoun for God there, and that's because God is not gendered. It is neither male nor female. I think that's pretty clear. In fact, in Genesis 1, it says that God created humans in His image, male and female in His image. So, God is not one or the other. Uh, I think there's reasons that the Bible writers put it in male pronouns, but I don't know that that's as helpful today. So, it's just one of my little piccadillies. I try to, and I notice I use male pronouns because I was trained that way forever, but I try to inject some female ones in my mind, and sometimes it makes me wake up. Sometimes it's like, oh yeah, God's not who I understand. Like, I don't know her very well. Like, I don't have her all figured out or him, or they, whichever pronoun. Like, it's not about God being gendered, because God is not. So, that's just an idea that I have. So, I'm weird, and that's okay. Um, because Aaron said he welcomes weirdness and people who are different. So, that's why I'm here. Um, so, Jonah is mad because God is too gracious, too forgiving, too compassionate. All right. I think we're down to my favorite story. All right, we're, we're going to actually talk about the Bible today. I know you were wondering at this point, because Aaron always starts, we are going to talk about the Bible. So, Luke 15, my favorite story that Jesus tells is often misnamed the story of the prodigal son. I think it's not a good name because the story of the prodigal son is not about a son, it's about two boys. Both the boys are poopy heads, and then there is the father, and the story's really about the father because the father 
acts the same way towards both of these boys. And it is about what Jesus is trying to teach, seem, seemingly, in this thing, this parable. Uh, before, see, I, I really will, I actually will get to the Bible, I'm sorry. But uh, before we get into this, um, I've always loved this story. But then I read a book by Kenneth Bailey that talked about uh, how Middle Eastern peasants would have seen this story. And he studied, he was a biblical scholar who studied in Palestine for his whole life. And he really, the richness of the understanding of what the culture was when the first hearers heard this little story from Jesus is just so much more rich than what we get when we read it. When I read it, I see God's compassion. But when a Middle Eastern peasant would have read this, he would have not only seen God's compassion, he would have seen like God's ridiculous compassion, almost inappropriate compassion. And we're just going to read it and then point out a few things about that. But when I talk about the culture, we do recognize that when Jesus tells a parable, it's kind of a story with a punchline, not like a jokey kind of punchline, but like a punch punchline, like hit you in the gut oftentimes like surprising, and that's often what we miss in Jesus' stories because we're from a different culture. It's like how I misunderstand almost every meme that my college son sends to me. I mean, I am baffled, you know? There's this crazy picture in this one sentence, and it takes me two seconds to see it and read it, <clears throat> and I mean, I have nothing. It's like he comes from a different culture than I do. And every once in a while, he will deign to explain why it's funny to me. And it will take him 10 minutes to explain it because I have no context for any of this culture. And all the little references that are involved in this one little picture. And after 10 minutes, you know, it's not really funny. But at least I understand why he thought it was funny to him. That is the kind of, <clears throat> actually probably much broader, the difference between where we stand and where Jesus' hearers stood when he was telling them this story. So, the few uh, little cultural things that I'm pulling out are from Kenneth Bailey. Uh, Luke 15, verse 11, and through verse 32. So, I'm going to read the story and then just point out a few quick things about the Father, and we will notice... Uh, maybe make a conclusion or two and it'll be done. Luke 15, verse 11, Jesus continued, there was a man who had two sons. The younger one said to his father, father, give me my share of the estate. Give me my money. So he divided his property between them. Not long after that, the younger son got together all that he had, set off for a distant country, and there squandered his wealth in wild living. After he had spent everything, there was a severe famine in that whole country, and he began to be in need. So he went and hired himself to a citizen of that country who sent him to, feed, to the field to feed pigs. He longed to fill his stomach with the pods that the pigs were eating, but no one gave him anything. When he came to his senses, he said, how many of my father's hired men have food to spare, and here I am starving to death? I will set out and go back to my father, and I will say to him, hmm, what am I going to say? What's going to sound good? Uh, father, I've sinned against heaven and against you. I'm no longer worthy to be called your son. Make me like one of your hired men. So he got up and went to his father. 
By the way, make me like one of your hired men is not the only option in the household. You have the kids, the family, you got the hired people, the hired hands, the craftsmen, and then you have slaves. Dude says, uh, I'll be like middle class. I'll, I'll shoot for middle class, right? He's got nothing. He wants to go middle class when he gets home. So uh, sometimes we think the son is repentant. I don't think he's super repentant. He's just hungry. All right. Well, so verse 30 or 20 says, so he got up and went to his father. But while he was still a long way off, his father saw him and was filled with compassion for him. He ran to his son, threw his arms around him, and kissed him. The son said to him, he started his speech, Father, I have sinned against heaven and against you. I am no longer worthy to be called your son. But the father said to his servants, Quick, bring the best robe and put it on him. Put a ring on his finger and sandals on his feet. Bring the fattened calf and kill it. Let's have a feast and celebrate. For this son of mine was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. So they began to celebrate. Meanwhile, the older son was in the field. When he came near the house, he heard music and dancing. So he called one of the servants and asked him what was going on. Your brother has come, he replied, and your father has killed the fattened calf because he has him back safe and sound. The older brother became angry and refused to go in. So his father went out and pleaded with him. But he answered his father, Look, all these years I've been slaving for you and never disobeyed your orders, yet you never even gave me a young goat so I could celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours who squandered your property with prostitutes comes home, you kill the fattened calf for him? My son, the father said, you are always with me, and everything I have is yours. But we had to celebrate and be glad because this brother of yours was dead and is alive again. He was lost and is found. Jesus tells this story <clears throat> after two other little stories. In the three stories he tells together, he tells because the Pharisees were complaining that he welcomed sinners and ate with them. He was too gracious. He was too compassionate. He was too welcoming. He should have shunned those people. They were unclean. How are they going to know to repent if you hang out with them the way they are? And they're bad people and we're the good people and you shouldn't even be hanging out with those people. So he tells this story in response to that situation. And there's three stories really, but we just can't unpack all of that. Jesus tells this story of the compassionate father or the ridiculous father. And I think he wants to show the Pharisees what he's like and in return what God is like what the father is like. So, as we look at this story, first of all, one of the little cultural things that we sometimes miss is this one we, we might catch. It's really offensive. It's much more offensive for this younger son to ask his father for his part of the money in that culture than it would be in ours. Now, it would be pretty offensive now because you're pretty much saying, Dad, I wish you were dead, which is pretty mean. It's pretty bad. But really, that culture is so based in respect and in the land and in the responsibility of caring for the land. This whole idea that we were going to divide up a chunk of the land, because that's what the inheritance was. It wasn't cash in the bank. It was a chunk of land. And we're going to divide it up before the father's gone and give you your portion of it is 
incredibly offensive, really ridiculous, and it would be wrong for the father to do it. It's really not appropriate. I mean, he can. It's not like he did a, you know, a sinful thing by doing that, but he ought not to do it because it's disrespectful, and he should have probably smacked his kid and, and told him, get out of here. What the heck are you doing? In addition, the, the older brother should have probably tried to reconcile the younger son and his father, but the older brother's got his own problems. So the younger son asked for his part. The father, instead of punishing him, says, okay, if you want to, you know, if you want it, I'll give it to you. Gives it to him. The son then takes the property that he gets and dispenses with it very quickly, like sells it on the cheap and runs off. In that culture, it would have taken, you know, days to negotiate a tiny little part of a contract in many cases. He's just like, whatever it takes, I need my cash, I need out of here. And he runs off, spends all his money, comes to his senses, comes up with this plan, and then heads back home. The father sees him while he is a long way off and runs to him. Now, this is another little piece of this culture. So the people that had, this father obviously has some means. He has a fattened calf that he can kill and feed the whole village. Of course, when the party happens, by the way, the whole village is coming to the party. Everybody's coming to the party because it's the only way we're going to eat this whole calf because we can't throw it in the freezer after this. So we got to eat. We have to consume the whole thing. It's a, it's a big party. So everybody's going to come. <clears throat> His house is most likely in the center of town because that's where the wealthy people lived, not on the outskirts. They lived in the center, and then the village went out, and then there were the fields on the outside of that. The whole community was offended by this boy's actions. And when he came back, they were going to enact a very specific kind of ritual because he had lost all his money to the Gentiles, and they were going to pretty much cast him out. That's probably what they would have been appropriate for them to do, is the village to cast him out and not even give the father the opportunity. The father's just going to stay in his house and not, not even come out to this profligate, this really bad, mean, uh, ungrateful, disrespectful child. So, the father in the center of town sees the son a long way off, like he's about to enter the town from the fields kind of a picture. And the father runs to him. Uh, the word is like that he races to him, not like jogs through town. It's like, uh, like the Greek Roman Olympics, like he's going to race across through the village to him. Now, after you were about 25 in that culture, you should never run anywhere, not because you can't, but because it's, disre it's inappropriate. It's like you have nobility, you have a certain decorum that you're supposed to maintain, and you're wearing a robe. And it would have been really inappropriate like for your ankles to even show by walking too quickly. So this dude would not have run anywhere for 40 years in his life, and then all of a sudden, he's booking it across the square through the village to get to his son. He's got to hike up his skirt and run, and his naked little legs show as he runs across the town. Now, that's not a big deal for us, but for them, it would have been like mortifying, scandalous behavior. Like if Grandpa walked into Walmart and dropped his shorts, you know? Oh my goodness, that is not right. 
What's wrong with grandpa? Get him into a home. So Jesus here, Jesus is pointing out that this father is like inappropriately concerned about this. Like it's not really right for him. The whole town would have been a bit scandalized by this. But the father sees him coming and is filled with compassion. The son is about to try to walk through this town where everybody is going to hate on him as he comes through the town. The father does not want any part of that. He wants everybody to know, my son is back and that's all I care about. And he books it through town, gets to his son. The son should have been bowing and kissing his hand or groveling, like on his face, kissing his feet would have been much more appropriate. The father has none of this. He just grabs him up in a hug and kisses and kisses him because he's just overjoyed by his son's return. <clears throat> Notice this happens before the kid starts his little speech about repentance. So regardless of whether the son is repentant or not, the father's not judging his repentance. This isn't about repent and then you'll be reconciled or then you'll be loved. The father is overwhelmed with compassion and love just because his kid's back on any old terms at all. So, the father is overwhelmingly compassionate. So, then they restore him to the family immediately, right? Like the best robe and the signet ring and the sandals, which means he's a part of the family now, not a slave. And all those things, they start the party. The older son should have just come into the house, first of all, but he knows like, what's going on? He's got this little skepticism, calls a kid out from the, like, what's happening? Tells him what's happening, and the older son refuses to go in. And that is probably at least as much of an insult to the father and as much of an inappropriate, disrespectful thing for this older son to do as what the younger son did, okay? Because what he was required to do was be a good host, and he was required to be a part of this celebration. Nobody in the community was left out, and he couldn't just decide not to host the community with his father and his family. He is really being very disrespectful of his father and the whole community when he refuses to go in. However, the story is about the father. The father is hosting the party. The older brother should be a part of that, but he hears that the older brother hasn't come in. Kenneth Bailey says, uh, it's a little, a little town, everybody knows everything immediately of what's going on. I mean, just the word spreads like wildfire. Everybody knows. And the father leaves his guests inappropriate, should not be done. That's not how you host a party. You can't leave the party. You certainly shouldn't do it for this punk kid who's disrespecting you. You ought to have him like tied up and I'll deal with you later kind of thing. But you shouldn't go out and you certainly shouldn't beg him to come back in. He's the one being inappropriate. But the father doesn't care. He cares about his other son now. He's on the outside. I don't want my son on the outside. So he embarrasses himself, leaves his guests. They're all like, what in the world is going on? They are once again scandalized. And the father goes out, begs his son to come in. We find out that the son thinks the father's a slave master, 
thinks the father's a terrible person. It's not about love. It's about money and about you never give me anything. And we, the kid's got a bad attitude, just like his younger brother has a bad attitude. But the story's about the father. The father doesn't care. The father wants to be reconciled to the older son, just like he wants to be reconciled to the younger son. Now, there's a lot of richness in this, but just very briefly, I think this kind of ridiculous love, overwhelming compassion, really inappropriate, uh, like no concern, this father has no concern for what people will think of him, for whether or not the sons have done the appropriate. He just wants to be reconciled no matter what. His love overwhelms no matter what. And I would say this is this kind of thing, the kinds of stories like this that Jesus tells. This is why when I think about like where do I want to lean, what do I lean toward, when you're trying to decide like, well, should we lean towards acceptance and love or should we lean towards like rule keeping and helping people repent and behave, I'm like, let's always lean. I feel this way and I feel this is where our church is too. It's one of the things I love about our community. We've, we've got to lean towards love and acceptance. And so, my suggestion, my recommendation for me, and maybe for us, if I can say that, is that we continuously disregard what people will think of us. Don't worry about the people on the outside who are judging if we're loving, and we just lean towards love and acceptance and grace. And will it be taken advantage of? Probably, possibly. Who cares? Will we be embarrassed? Possibly. Who cares? I don't think the Father was concerned about that. I don't see God concerned about that. I think God is always concerned about reconciliation, love, grace, and forgiveness to the people furthest from her all the time. Let's pray.